morning. We'll head over to Luke 21 this morning. So two weeks ago, I usually have an idea of how far things are going in a week, but two weeks ago I split what was going to be one sermon into two sermons, um, and at lunch that day I get home and my son Beckham asked me, Dad, or said, Dad, you never talked about the widow, um, because we were going to do that the week after that. Somehow he had missed it, and uh, that the rest of the passage was going to be preached the following week uh, at that time, and even though I think we made a big announcement at the beginning that that was the way it worked. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, I, you don't typically hear Britney Spears quoted in uh, a sermon, and there's good reason for that. Uh, I do find it necessary today. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is, oops, I did it again. Um, splitting it, right? Uh, seven years. I have never began preparation on a sermon and split it into two sermons ever. Uh, and now in 2021, it's happened twice. I don't know how to make sense out of it. Uh, but that's what we're doing today. And so, Beckham, we're going to get to the second half of this passage next week. Uh, so if you don't hear about persecution and perseverance, you're going to hear it next week, okay? Uh, just to make sure everyone gets that. So then, uh, as we come to this passage, uh, I do want to read this. Uh, J.C. Ryle, a man who was, uh, he was referred to as the last of the Puritans, okay? Uh, and when he came to this chapter on these prophetic words of our Lord, he gave this warning. He said, let us beware on the one hand of lazy indifference, which, indifference, which turns away from all prophetical scripture because of its difficulties. And let us beware on the other hand of that dogmatic, arrogant spirit which makes people forget that they are students and causes them to talk confidently as if they were the prophets themselves. <clears throat> so as we spend the, the next couple of weeks um, actually in prophetic words of our Lord, we want to keep that in mind. We want to seek to learn what the Lord has us to learn. So uh, again, we are going to read the first half, the whole of the first half. Does that make sense? I don't even want to say it now. We're going to read a portion of scripture here, uh, beginning in verse 5 and We'll uh, stop at a certain point, and then we'll finish off it off next week. So, uh, verse 5. <clears throat> and while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will, be, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. But do not go after, that, or after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. And then he said to them, Nation will arise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. I'm going to stop right there. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, the portion of your holy word that we are in this morning and uh, in the next couple of weeks even can be difficult to understand. And so we are asking you, Holy Spirit, to give us understanding and to make us love you more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so let's start with a, a little bit of history. Uh, back in Exodus 25, God tells Moses to build a tabernacle. The idea there is this portable tent-like structure 
uh, that is to be used for, for them to come and to meet with God. It was going to be the place where the Ark of the Covenant was stored, right? The, the gold-plated box uh, containing the two tablets of the uh, Ten Commandments, containing Aaron's rod and some manna, that bread that fell from heaven. Uh, so that's, that's the beginning of this idea of a place for God's people to meet with him. And then later in Deuteronomy 12, God says, uh, I'll choose a place to make my name dwell. And he explains that this will be a place where you're going to bring your offerings and you're going to bring your sacrifices to God. Not too long after that, uh, King David says he wants to build God a, a house, right? A place to dwell. Uh, and God says, no, you, you, you can't do that. That's not for you to do. And at the same time, David makes an offering to God, and he makes that offering on the mountain, Mount Moriah, right? And the Lord receives that sacrifice. Now, Mount Moriah is, is fairly significant and when you're waking your way through Scripture. If you can, quickly turn back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis uh, 22.2. So 22.2. Um, God is speaking, and God says to Abraham... Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And you know this story, then you know that Abraham goes and he's prepared to sacrifice his son in obedience to the Lord. Um, and God steps in, right? He, he stops him from doing so. He provides a, a ram whose horns are, or horns are stuck in a thicket. Uh, and can't get away, and God says, you know, this is to replace Isaac. It's a substitutionary sacrifice here. That happens on Mount Moriah. Uh, and if you will, if you can turn quick, head over to Second Chronicles uh, 3.1, first verse of chapter 3. And here David's son finally begins to build this temple, right, this dwelling place for the Lord. And listen as he reads this. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. That's the place, right, where this temple is to be, be built. Now Solomon's temple is built and finished in 957 B.C. It gets a little confusing because you have to get your mind around B.C. numbers go down, not up, as years go on. It lasts for 371 years. It's destroyed in 586 B.C. Uh, by Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of Babylon, okay? So it's gone at that point. It's been destroyed. Now, if you've ever read Ezra and Nehemiah, you know that they tell the story of the temple being rebuilt. It is rebuilt and finished in 516. We're getting closer to zero, right? Uh, and like most sequels, this temple is uh, disappointing as far as grandeur goes. Um, not that the people necessarily saw it that way, but it did not have all the magnificent stuff that you might expect. And this is the temple until around 20 B.C., uh, when Herod the Great, Herod the Great, he is a practicing Jew, but the Jews say, no, you're not a Jew, uh, because ethnically he's only half Jew, and that was not enough for them, uh, and so they reject him outright. But anyway, he, he loves his Jewish faith, he wants to, uh, and so he decides that at this point he's going to redo the temple, temple. he's going to expand it, he's going to make it into this massive complex made of beautiful materials. Okay, now at the time that, that Jesus is ministering here on earth, part of it is still being constructed. The main parts are done, but it's still going on. It's not going to be finished until 64 AD, you know, quite a bit afterwards. This is the temple that we're talking about at this point. And so then most 
Israelites, most people in Israel lived in these small homes. They were made out of mud. They were made out of dull brick, nothing impressive. There, in fact, in their culture, there were not many buildings that could ever wow a person. But the temple, this upgraded temple, this could wow a person. Any person that just saw it from a distance even would be absolutely amazed by it. Now, this might not seem big by our standards. I mentioned this to my family. Like, That's not big at all, Dad. Uh, the perimeter of it was a, a mile around. City Park is, is the same size, right? Quarter mile on each side, one mile around. If you want to get the idea, that's the temple complex, if you, if you will. It's made of beautiful stones. Uh, some of them are nearly 40 feet long. To put that in perspective, this wall to this wall is uh, 45 feet from one side to the other. Uh, some of these stones were 12 feet tall. Not all of them, but a few of them. Uh, and, and this was the, you know, the highest building at this point is, is nine story tall, which again, we're like, that's not a whole lot, but you got to consider the time. You come into town, the only thing you see from a distance is that nine story temple, right? And it's, it's made of this beautiful white marble. Some of the places have plates of gold on them that would have been reflecting the sun. Uh, and it was just as ornate inside. This is the temple, right? This is the temple where, where Jesus, as a baby, received the sign of the covenant, circumcision. This is the temple where Jesus, as a boy, travels with his family and listens and teaches. And this is the temple where not long ago Jesus has driven out the money changers. This, this temple is just the center of everything in Jewish life. It, it, it was where the festivals were. It's where they came to worship. It's where they brought their sacrifices to. Uh, this is where the people of God came into the presence of God. If they wanted to be close to God, this is where they came. Uh, and, and the people love the temple. And that's why Jesus is sitting here. And they're talking about, look how beautiful it is. Isn't it wonderful? We love this temple. Now, when I came on staff um, of our church in, in Overland Park, we were building this, this new sanctuary. It, it's an old architecture. It's, it's just it's gorgeous. It really is. Uh, and just about every day, someone would come in to the office delivering something or whatever, and they would just talk about, it is so beautiful. I can't believe, like, just amazed by, by this building that was going up. And, and then this one day, this one guy comes in, and he just looks gruffy from the start. Um, and he walks in. He doesn't say hi, anything. He just looks at me. He didn't know who I am either. And he just goes, that's all five and a half million will get you. And I wanted to punch him in the nose, like, Boom, I don't know who you are, but for some reason I wanted to defend this building. Um, the guy is actually a really close friend of mine, and, and John Dunnings as well. He's the pastor of Evangel PCA down in Wichita, but he just came in trying to mess with us. And, and, and you know, that's, the, you know, but my thought at the time was, why, why would you say such a rude thing about this building, right? That's for the worship of God and, and all that. And, and so then here is Jesus in, in the midst of these people, right? And they're all complimenting how beautiful this building is. Isn't it great? Uh, and Jesus, look what he says, right? Verse 6. Uh, he says, As for these things that you see, meaning the temple, the day will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In other words, look how beautiful it is. And here's Jesus. You know, um, this is all going to be rubble at some point. That, you know, what a buzzkill. I mean, can you imagine standing outside of Anderson Hall at K-State and admiring, look at this classic architecture, isn't it beautiful? And, and some guy next to you is like, you know what, before long, this whole thing's just going to be demolished. You'd want to ask, what, why, what? 
What are you talking, like why? And, and, and yet Jesus' question, right? They don't question whether it's going to happen or not. They trust that, that Jesus knows what's going to happen. And so their question is, when will this happen? When will it happen? You know, like if I told you, you know what, your, your house is going to burn to the ground. It's just going to burn. You, and you know, if, if you believe me 100% on this, your next question would be, when, when is this going to happen, right? Is this today? Do I need to get there right now? Do we need to get our stuff out? I, I already know the three things I'm going to get out, but do I need to do that right now? When is this going to happen? Now, they also thought Jesus was talking about this event that was going to signify the end of the world, right? Because, right, and, and so they're just wanting to know, when, when is this going to happen, right? They're, they're like, 1980 kids in the back of a station wagon asking that, you know, are we there yet? They, they just want to know when, when is this going to occur? And, and so now these words of Jesus here are prophetic in the sense that we generally use the word. I know I explained a, a more biblical view of it recently, but there's also this sense of explaining things that are going to happen in the future. And that's what Jesus' words are doing here. It's a, it's a lot like, and keep this in mind, it's a lot like prophecy in the Old Testament. Uh, there is this near-time aspect to it, and there is this far-time aspect to it. Now, you ever seen one of those uh, photo mosaic pictures, right? You see, like, it's a logo of a school or something, a college, whatever it might be from a distance. And then you get close, and you realize, oh, it's made up of little pictures of all the students. Or, or you know, the, maybe it's Michael Jordan, whatever it might be. And, and you see both of those things. It's, it's a little like that, right? In the sense that Jesus is talking about things that will happen before his return at the end of the age, right? His second coming. That's the larger image. But he's also telling his disciples at the time about things that are, that are going to happen very soon. It's, it's, you know, is it the image of the school's logo or is it the image of students? What are we looking at here, right? Yes, it's both of them, right? Depending upon how close you are to that picture, it's, it's actually both. Is this prophecy about the first century, or is this about Jesus' second coming? And the answer is yes. It's about both, depending upon where you're standing, right? It covers both of these things. And so Jesus here is saying, you know what? The temple, that temple you love so much, that is going to be destroyed. And, and to them, that was just the most unlikely thing in the world, right? Because it's so massive, it's so huge. Um, that was the place where they came into the presence of God. Why would God ever let that happen? It'd be a little like gazing on the Twin Towers, right? New York. If, if you, those of you that are old enough to remember this, I know it's become our generation's Pearl Harbor at this point, but um, if someone had told you in the late 90s, look at these Twin Towers, they're all going to be just, they're going to be like come down and just be piles of debris and destruction. You'd just be, no, like how could that possibly happen? That can't happen. Why? Right? That's the way it would be. It's just not possible. That's how these Jews would have felt but significantly more about Jesus' words here. And yet Jesus' words are proven to be absolutely true through and through. Um, there was a Jewish insurrection, insurrection in 66 AD that eventually led to the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of this beautiful temple in 70 AD. Uh, who did it? It's the Romans. The Romans did it, right? Uh, they tore the temple down stone by stone. And the early Christians believed, and I agree with them, uh, that this was divine judgment on Israel for rejecting the Messiah. But it's also perfectly in line 
with what Jesus accomplished on the cross and with the empty tomb. It's, it's in line with this transition that's going on in redemptive history at this, uh, that's occurring at this moment, right? As, as Christ comes and he, he dies on the cross and he's resurrected from the tomb. Now, you, you remember that the Jews have wanted a, a political and an economic and a military leader. That's, that's what they want in a Messiah. That's what they hope for. That's what they expect. Someone like Judas Maccabeus. Anybody know who Judas Maccabeus? Just throw your, okay, a few of you. You went to like a Jewish school. That didn't count. Uh, okay. <clears throat> Judas Maccabeus, right? This is history most Christians don't typically know. During the second century BC, uh, some wild and crazy Greeks took over the temple and, and, they in the, and just to desecrate it, right? They make this altar to Zeus that they're going to worship on. Uh, and, and if you know, right, pigs are unclean within the Jewish understanding. Uh, and they were sacrificing pigs on this altar to Zeus in the temple. And then this guy, this Jewish guy, Judas Maccabeus, nicknamed the Hammer, right? Uh, in 167 BC, he gathers his family and he gathers a bunch of others, all these people that are too legit to quit, and they forcibly remove the Greeks and cleanse the temple. They just get rid of all that stuff. And, and this is what, what, what the holiday Hanukkah is about, right? You thought it was about spinning dreidels. It's not about spinning dreidels, but it is. They do that. Uh, it's about these Greeks coming into the temple, and they've ruined all this oil that would have been used for, for, for the menorah. And the menorah is this, there's a lot of description in it. Anyway, the menorah is this gold lamp. It had seven little finger things that come off of it that all lit up, and the oil would light the fire for that time. Um, and so anyway, as they're looking through the temple, they find one little day's worth of oil that they can use, and they put that into this lamp. Uh, and instead of lasting the one day, it actually lasts eight days, and, that, and that's Hanukkah for you, right? Anyway, uh, the Jews are expecting a Messiah like this guy, like Judas the Hammer Maccabeus. And instead, God gives us Jesus. Not like Jacob Maccabeus. Here he is, right? Jesus predicting his own death. And now here he is predicting the destruction of, of the most beloved temple, the, the, the center of the Israelite kingdom, the symbol of strength, the place where they would come to meet and be in the presence of God. You see, it's, it's part of God's plan because Jesus renders the temple obsolete. He does. Everything that happened in the temple now happens through Jesus. And, and so now you see why Jesus is telling them, you know, the temple is going to be destroyed. And, and Jesus doesn't say, you know what, we got to stop this from happening. It's all part of God's plan. And, and because the temple is no longer of use for God's covenant people. It's kind of like the, the box, right, that you're Ikea furniture comes in. It shows you this is what it's going to look like, and you have something to kind of compare it so you can know. But once you put together the real thing, <clears throat> what it's pointing to, what it represents, right, you, you don't need the box anymore. You just get rid of it. You no longer need it. Now, now because of Jesus' blood shed for our sins, <clears throat> the blood of animals is of no use. Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12, when, when, when Christ appeared as a high priest, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You see, through Jesus' sacrifice, God's people 
can now come directly into the presence of God. We, we do so through prayer. We do so through His Word, no matter where we are. Uh, so many of, of the Jews in Jesus' days, they honestly, they, just, they dreamed too small about what God was doing with His kingdom and what He was doing and, and, and the Messiah. They, you know, and, and, and there's something to be learned here, right? Let, let go of your hope for a political Messiah. Forget economic salvation as if, you know, that's, that's what the gospel were about or something. You, you don't need a military savior by, by any means. Jesus has secured for us an eternal kingdom that will make all other kingdoms in history look like, like, like something a child built out of Legos or Lincoln Logs, you know. It's nothing compared to what he's actually doing. But furthermore, all who have faith in Jesus, we are the new and the better temple. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Or listen to Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of Godless and built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. See, every new person who comes to faith joyfully comes to faith in Jesus Christ is an expansion of this new and this better kingdom. And so then, Jesus doesn't answer their question, right? Not, not directly, not immediately. When, when's this going to happen? And he doesn't answer it right away. Uh, in verse 8, instead he says this, right? He gives two warnings uh, that we're going to see today. And the first one's in verse 8. He, he says, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and, and the time is at hand. Do not go after those persons. And, and remember, these have an immediate aspect, specific aspect for the disciples and, and a more general application for us today. And, and so their question, right, is, is when is this going to happen? And, and his first answer is, you know what? I'll tell you when it's not going to happen. It's, it's definitely not going to happen when, when guys come and say, you know what, I'm the Christ and pretend to be me. It's not going to happen when that happens. And it's not going to be, not going to happen when there's some guys claiming that they can predict when it is. That's not going to happen. That's when it's not going to happen. And he's warning, warning them that it's very simple. Do not follow these teachers. Do not follow them. In, in, in my observation... Uh, which is a little research in the history, I found that predicting the world or claiming to be the Christ leads people to very bad life decisions. Uh, I'll give you a few examples. Uh, first, back in the 17th century, there's this Jewish guy in Europe. His name is Sabbatai Savi, and he claimed to be the Christ, right? Remember the Jews don't recognize Jesus as the Christ, and he claims, I am the Christ, uh, and thousands of Jews in, in Europe start following him and worshiping him. And, and that, you know, they, they think this is the guy, although it, they begin to question it. And it gets a little awkward when he eventually, in fear, converts to Islam, right? They didn't expect that to happen. Um, and then later, when things are fine, he converts back to Judaism and claims to be the Christ again. A lot less people were willing to buy it the second time around. Um, this man made very bad life decisions, and all those who followed him as well. Uh, jump up to the 19th, uh, 1978, right? Jim Jones claims he was 
Jesus incarnate, incarnate, thank you. How did that word leave my head? Yeah, Jesus incarnate. Uh, Anyway, he says the end of the world is near. He he takes his people. They all go down to what becomes, you know, Jonestown in in, uh, South America. And he orchestrates this mass suicide of 200 or 918 people as they drink this poison Kool-Aid, right? You've heard the phrase, don't drink the Kool-Aid. This is why. It was poisoned. Uh, 1993, uh, unfortunately, my fellow Houstonian, David Koresh, right? He claims to be the Christ. He, he gets himself a bunch of followers, and then he gets him and a bunch of his followers all blown up in Waco, Texas. You probably, some of you know that one. Uh, Heaven's Gate cult. How many remember that one? Hail Bop comets coming. They're convinced this Hail Bop comet, this is the sign of the end of the world. Uh, and 39 of them commit mass suicide, March 1997. Poor life decisions. Harold Camping uh, predicted 200 million people are going to be raptured on September 6, 1994. It didn't happen. He says, you know what, I got the math wrong. I don't know, maybe he didn't carry the one, something like that. He, he predicts two more times that year. Both of those are wrong. He waits a while, then he you know, puts it way off. 2011 is when he says it's going to be. Now, you probably figured this out by now. It did not happen in 2011, right? That was incorrect as well. What we know is that at Jesus' time, nobody knew when the temple was going to be destroyed. And today, nobody knows when Jesus is going to return. Not even Tim LaHaye. Nobody. Simply put, Christians do not be led astray by end times predictions or by false teachers who claim they are the Messiah. And when I say end time predictions, I don't mean you don't look into these things. I mean, if someone tells you, I know the date and this is when it's going to be, do not believe that. Don't buy into that. Follow after the Lord, nobody else. And then uh, verses 9 through 11, right? Jesus gives somewhat of an answer as to uh, this question, the real question, when is the destruction of the temple going to return? Uh, it's not what we expect. He doesn't say it's going to be 36 years from now and, you know, a few weeks or anything like that. He doesn't say it's going to be December 21st, 2012, if you're using the Gregorian calendar. Nothing like that. He's a lot more vague. Uh, it, it, kind of like cooking with a Peruvian. We had this Peruvian friend named Tommy who made this delicious thing called chicharron. And we wanted the recipe. And so we go over to his house and we're going to write down the recipe. Laura's going to write down the recipe. And... And she's ready to do it, and he just starts throwing, you know, here's some spice in there, and throw some of this in there, and all this kind of, you know, a little of this, a little of that, and it's driving Laura nuts. She's like, well, how much did you throw in? And just a little bit, there's a little bit in there. These aren't precise things, you know, there's nothing you can work with here. Uh, that's a little like Jesus' explanation here. He says, before the destruction, uh, all these things are going to happen. Uh, but you don't tell you, like, how much before, or any of that kind of thing. He says, before destruction, there's going to be wars and tumults. Uh, how many of you know what tumults means? Well done, Jim. Okay. College must be an SAT word, right? Uh, it just means this mass noise, chaos thing, confusion going on. Um, and, and again, it's not precise. Uh, just these things happen. Jesus also says nations will fight against nations, and they did. Uh, the Jewish insurrection before Rome, uh, and, you know, and, and they have this dispute or dispute and then they flatten Jerusalem and Israel right he, he says there's going to be earthquakes and famines and pestilences right aka there's going to be infectious plagues uh, and the thing is these things occurred at the time and the temple was destroyed just like he said 
But they're also still happening today, more than we realize even. Uh, the Tigray War is occurring in Africa right now. On January 21st uh, this year, a seven, uh, magnitude 7 earthquake hit the Philippines. Uh, there's been a famine in South Sudan since 2017. Uh, as far as these great signs of heaven, right, things you're going to be seeing in, in the sky is what he's talking about. There, there's an asteroid going to pass the earth in a, a month from now. There, there's been all kinds of asteroid uh, things happening here. This always seemed to be happening. Uh, I, I don't know if you notice, right, we are currently living through a global pandemic, right, a.k.a. pestilence. Um, and we hear reports that the world can't sustain life forever, and if we're honest, that can be terrifying. You don't have to watch the news or read much very long before you start panicking a little bit. And Jesus tells us, you know what, this stuff is going to happen before the end. And it's a good reminder for us, right, that the end could come at any time. We don't know. Uh, but what else does Jesus say to us, right? Uh, there in Luke 21, verse 9, our Lord says, do not be terrified. Do not be terrified. Whatever disaster that, that we might see in our 60-inch TVs or our 6-inch phones, right? God is still with us. This, this is all supposed to happen, and it's, it's, it's okay, right? And the reason that we can see terrifying things happening in the world, the reason we can see that and not be absolutely terrified is that Jesus has redeemed your soul for eternity. If your faith is in Christ, that's true. What, what you need to know today is, is that your greatest enemy, and hear me out here, your greatest enemy today is not a political party or a politician. The, your greatest enemy is not China, it's, it's not North Korea. Your, your greatest enemy isn't COVID, it isn't cancer, it isn't heart disease. Your greatest enemy is not melting ice caps or some natural disaster that could happen. Your, your, your greatest enemy is not our government falling apart, it is not moral decay of our society, it is not... Uh, a financial depression coming into to the world or our country. Your greatest enemy is sin and guilt and death and divine judgment. That's your greatest enemy. And so if you're united to Jesus by faith, you really don't have to be terrified by all these things that Jesus is telling us are going to happen before the end. And you don't have to be terrified because Jesus is your Savior and He protects you from that enemy. And you don't have to be terrified because none of those other things can harm your soul when your soul is secure in Christ. Do you know that? Like really deep down, know that. And we're going to finish up here by just reflecting on something we learn in, in Revelation 21. We, we know that before the cross... God met with his people in the temple, right? You want to be close to God, you go to the temple. We, we, we know today the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And Revelation 21.3 tells us that in the future we will listen, and this is a quote now from Revelation 21.3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then listen to this, right? 19 verses later, as, as the Apostle John is writing what, Jesus, or what God is showing him, right? Uh, through this vision. And he says this, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. 
And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the, lamp, and, and the light is the Lamb. I mean, that's what we have to look forward to. We, we worry so much about these signs of the end sometimes, you know. What, what do we have to go through? And we forget, where are we going? What do these signs at the end actually point to? And they point to this time when, when, when we are going to be in the presence of God in a way that even we've never quite experienced yet. Even as glorious closeness as we have with the Lord today. And, and what a glorious day that will be. Uh, let us pray. Uh, Sovereign Lord, had it been your will, uh, the temple would still be standing today. It's not. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We, we thank you for the once for all perfect sacrifice of our Lord. We, we thank you that we do not need to travel to Jerusalem to, to be in your presence. We thank you for making our bodies temples of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for giving us reason to not be terrified and Please protect us from being led astray by imposters. And finally, Lord, thank you for ever changing how we meet with you and worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.